You brought a Bible this morning to open up to Matthew chapter 14, the uh, scripture passage on which the teaching is based this morning. <clears throat> I want to read through verses 13 through 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab a pew Bible if you can. I think it's located on page 820 or so. You can follow along with us as we study this morning. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to attend the uh, Old Miss um, uh, Texas A&M game, and I got tickled at something. My premise this morning is simply this. Every culture has embedded within it these almost unquestioned practices that exist to sort of mark us out as citizens or members or a family or whatever. That if you were to come from another country or maybe another planet, you would think it was like super weird. Um, so the game, after the teams had taken the field and the crowd was instructed to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, I looked around the stadium and, and almost every single in the person in the stadium did this without instruction. They put their hand over their heart. No one was telling them to do so, but I got tickled wondering what someone from another country might think about this. They walk in and they're kind of like, is everyone okay? Does everyone have heartburn? Is there a sudden outbreak of uh, heart problems that everyone's having? What are you doing? Of course, we would say, no, you have to understand, placing your hand on your heart is a sign of respect. It's a gesture that symbolizes dignity and honor. I even found a Smithsonian Magazine article that said that when you place your hand over your heart, you're more likely to tell the truth and be honest in a way in which you wouldn't others. Who knows? I'm just trying to draw your attention to the fact that we establish these physical actions to draw attention to these deeper very spiritual realities that are below the surface. Turns out, by the way, that the Bible has all kinds of these actions, especially the Old Testament prophets. You could take the prophet Ezekiel, for example. In Ezekiel chapter 4, God tells the prophet that he wants him for a year to lay down on his side in, a pu in the public square to make a point about God's judgment on Israel or something. But the Bible calls these, scholars call these things prophetic actions, they're sign acts of the prophets, and they're common ways in which they would make deeper points. Well, the story that we've just read is actually really important, mostly because this story is told and recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's the only of the miracles that comes in every one of them, with no real variation between the telling of them. And so clearly what you have is, is a story that stuck a very deep cord in the hearts of these disciples and Jesus' early followers. And so my point this morning is simply this. They remembered the event and started to write about it for reasons that were far more profound than just a, 
don't know, a cool trick of uh, feeding lots of people with just a little bit of food. No, no, no. Jesus is not just meeting a need that exists within these people's stomachs. The miracle was also functioning as something else. It was a prophetic action. It was a sign act of Jesus. In other words, he's saying something much more profound with the miracle. And of course, the nice thing about this passage is, is you can do some really simple cross-referencing and find out exactly what Jesus intended by this. Quickest way to get there is probably in John chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 50, where Jesus says this, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Aha. So there's Jesus' point. He's saying, you and I have hunger inside of us that only Jesus can satisfy. And the bread that Jesus is coming to bring you in this miraculous feeding is pointing to that hunger. You know, in a sermon I heard many, many years ago, I heard Keller direct me to a quote by the existentialist atheist philosopher, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, which went like this. He said, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. But that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. It's amazing, I think, because what he's saying is, is I don't believe in God, but I'm hungry for God. I'm hungry for what only God can give. And of course, what Jesus is saying is, the hunger that Sartre says has no cure, I actually have the cure for. The bread that alone can satisfy that hunger, you're only going to find it in me. Uh, it's funny, I was at a pastor's retreat. Brian and I were actually at a pastor's retreat a couple weeks ago in a small town in uh, Arkansas. And we got to have lunch at this really cute little um, uh, cafe near the downtown uh, sandwich shop there. And so as we waited for our, um, our turkey Rubens to arrive, uh, I noticed, Brian and I both noticed a plaque that was up on the wall, a little fishing community that it is near an Arkansas River, that simply said this. It was a quote from uh, Henry David Thoreau. It said, many men go fishing all their lives without knowing that it's not the fish that they are after. And I thought, bingo. <laughs> and it's what I'm trying to convince you of today because Jesus is doing something that is patently amazing for sure. But I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees this morning because I think there's at least three things that Jesus instructing us in by the meal that he hosts with these people. And once you, once you really wrap your mind around them, you're going to find that there's a real satisfaction there that actually goes beyond filling an empty stomach. So three things this morning. Jesus' meal, first of all, does a lot with a little. Secondly, it's a meal that's for everyone. And then finally, Jesus' meal foreshadows better meals. So let's start with that first one. Jesus' meal does a lot with a little. Um, just about every commentator I consult on this passage made mention of the fact that it's more than likely that Jesus fed a whole lot more people than just the 5,000 here. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew says, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Why do you add that little detail there? Well, that's making it explicit that when roles and censuses were taken in the ancient Near East, at least in this culture, they rarely counted the women and children. Why? Well, because they were second-class citizens in their particular view, which means that the total number of who got fed was likely far more than 5,000, probably was closer to 10,000. And all of that happened with five loaves and two fishes. 
That's what the text is saying. By the way, um, resist temptations to give any weight to the sort of <coughs> some theological liberalism that wants to twist these clearly established miracles into something that was very natural, actually, for, just for fun dug up somebody who was suggesting that, uh, what was they suggesting? That basically Jesus was simply making, telling people to make use of the bread that they already had with them. Okay, whatever. Um, they, they can't imagine themselves to be, a, that this would be a real story, so they make up things like that. But I think it's important to say it is orthodox Christianity to teach that Jesus was able to materialize fresh bread and cooked fish out of thin air so that all these people could eat. But there was something else that he wanted, to, wanted them to get as well. Because notice that in each telling of this story, the disciples are intimately involved in his mission. Look at verse 16 and what I'm stressing here. Jesus looks and says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. That gets told every time the story is told. And what I think Matthew is simply signaling here is what's being suggested is God is here ready to provide the very thing that he's commanded them to do. And this is huge because there's always highlighting the smallness of the amount of food because it's trying to say that in fact, Jesus has said, do not be fooled. It is your responsibility, my follower, <laughs> to feed these people. But it highlights the fact that Jesus is saying that when it's all summed up though, I'm the one that's going to provide what you need to finish it. So that's what, I love what Matthew's saying. Matthew's suggesting that every Christian who dives into the life of any person with the intention to help them. Any someone who gets a glimpse of the needs that exist in the world, any, any Christian who jumps into the life of a broken person, any person who, who visits the, the, the inner cities of our nation, invariably walks away with an impression that says, you know what, there is no possible way. We don't have enough resources. There's not enough manpower. We don't have enough money. There's no way this is going to happen. I've told this story quite a number of times because it, it made such an impression on me. But about 30 years ago, I found myself working in a mission uh, in New York City. And we were visiting this rotunda that exists uh, at the 79th Street in Riverside, uh, where a homeless community had taken up residence underneath this uh, 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 rotunda. Some like a couple hundred people down there. And we were distributing blankets, and, and we were encouraged to sort of, you know, sit down and, and engage with, uh, in conversation with some of the uh, residents there. Well, there was just one lady who was sitting on a small cot in the encampment uh, who explained to my coworker and I that she was aware of certain other people in her group who were trying to contract AIDS. Why? Because they had heard uh, that you could actually get a free apartment if it was proven that you had AIDS. And again, you hear a story like that and you start to think, <clears throat> okay, I don't even know where to begin with this person. There's no way that I have the resources to help this person. I had a dear friend of mine who uh, planned a church, uh, planted a church in downtown Birmingham who used to tell me, Les, when you, when you walk into the life of a broken street person, you enter into a web of chaos. Do not expect two and two to equal four in that world anymore. <clears throat> There's this inertia, not only to despair in the life of the individual, but also to the person who's trying to help that person. It's despairing. There's no way that we can pull this off. But here's my point. This story is pushing you away from that conclusion <laughs> because Jesus is clearly broadcasting. First of all, 
Yes, this is on you. This is your task. This is what I'm calling you to do. You go and meet these people's needs. But of course, as soon as that comes in, he's saying, I haven't set you into anything though. I'm not sending you into any task that I'm not going to supplement and multiply and overwhelm you with what I do with your tiny little offerings. He's saying, I know you don't think that it'll stretch, but I promise you, I can make it. I'm going to make it. I do make it. Whatever you bring to me, I promise you it's going to be enough. I know what we think is the little things that we do. I didn't accomplish anything with that. Yes, you did. Because Jesus promises by this story to do a lot with a little. Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet sees this very mysterious vision that tells him a little bit about the efforts that he's having to bring Israel to repentance. But God assures him uh, in verse 6 that it is not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, it's okay that it's just a small thing. Bring whatever you have. I will supply the increase. You'll be amazed by it. So yeah, first of all, Jesus does a lot with a little. Secondly, though, we see that Jesus' meal is for everyone. Look, even if you do just a little bit of casual glancing ahead in our study in Matthew, you're going to find something really peculiar. And that is that there's another feeding miracle, like one chapter away from this one. Literally, this whole scene gets almost repeated verbatim at the end of the very next chapter. You could be forgiven for wondering and being confused. Like, uh, we got it, Jesus. We got the first one. The first one was cool enough. Why are you shoving this down our throats? But actually, there's some clues in the text that lets us know that this is not just a needless repetition. First of all, notice the location of the two miracles. Because when you combine the information that you get from both of these accounts, all of these accounts in the Gospels, you're going to see that this particular feeding happens in primarily Jewish territory. While a couple of verses later, when he feeds the 4,000, that takes place in an area known as Tyre and Sidon, which is primarily Gentile territory. Ah, now we see where it's going. And of course, even beyond that, you cannot avoid the significance of how many baskets they collected as they picked up the pieces. This is too, this is too telegraphed here. You know, for the 5,000, what do they collect? They collect 12 baskets. Well, you remember the Jewish people thought of numbers in very significant ways. And so 12 baskets being a number of completion and fullness was, was saying something. Meanwhile, the feeding of the Gentiles was seven baskets. That's a number of perfection. What's the point? The point is all of the feedings that we are bringing, that Jesus is bringing to people are suited perfectly both for Jews and for Gentile recipients. Now look, I realize to our modern ears, that sounds, that sounds all egalitarian, right? Well, of course, Jesus offers his healings and his food to Jew and Gentile. I mean, he's all uh, equal opportunity like that, right? But look, Matthew is writing, though, to a Jewish audience, remember? <laughs> Which means that more than likely when they read this story, they were going to get to the end of chapter 15 and see that Jesus does the same miracle for those people, the outsiders, as well as the official people of God, would have been shocking. In other words, Jesus is constantly including all the wrong people in his mission. These aren't the right people. By the way, this happens again in the book of Acts. 
If you go back to the book of Acts, you find that the day of Pentecost happens for a mostly Jewish audience in the temple in Acts chapter 2. But then all of a sudden, again, in Acts chapter 10, you've got the same thing happening through Cornelius's house to the Gentiles. You see the pattern? Look, I don't think we can stress this, this off too often living in the state of Mississippi as we do, but it's important for us to take this face on. You will know when you are following the real Jesus, when you find yourself um, crossing more boundaries than you are setting up boundaries between people groups around you. Look, Jesus extends his message out to those people, however you define who those people are, which I would say is a powerful litmus test, is it not? How do I know if I'm really believing? How do I know that I'm really following this Jesus? Well, if your faith is not pushing you on the inside to befriend, to sympathize, to even take up the cause of those who are fundamentally different from you, then you might not be following this Jesus. Because his message and his mission is both for insiders and for outsiders. So the question is, what people group in Oxford, Mississippi, do you actively withdraw yourself from? Whether subtly or maybe obviously, and for what reason? What's at the base of that? I think the warning ought to be taken very seriously because it stands to reason that if Jesus is building a kingdom by grace and grace alone, then people who you have determined don't deserve to be there, what happens when they start showing up in your life? Because the danger of being offended by those people when they start showing up, I don't know, maybe in the seats down the row from you right now, is denying Jesus' mission is a mission of grace. And perhaps it is that there's a little bit of merit that it's crept its way into your thinking. In which case your situation is far more dangerous than you can imagine. You're not acting in line. That's a phrase, by the way, that Paul will use in Galatians when he confronts um, uh, Peter on his racism. For real, it's in there, Galatians 2. Go home and read it. Paul says you're not acting in line with the gospel. And those gospel lines cause me to begin to sort of break down these walls that aren't about what Christ is bringing. So yeah, it's a meal for everybody. Thirdly, though, and finally, Jesus' meal foreshadows better meals. I really love this because you can see where this is going, I hope, because there's another textual clue as to how the Christian church understood this miracle. Look at verse 36. This is really the key. He took the seven loaves and the fish And having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. All right. Did you notice the progression of those verbs? Jesus took, he blessed, or he gave thanks, he broke, and then he gave. The reason why that's interesting is because those verbs are delivered in exactly the same sequence in every version of this miracle that you have in every gospel. It's exactly the same. By the way, he does it again at the end of Luke when he's talking to the um, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Same, same verb sequence, okay? So think about this. What's happening? These gospels would have been being written when these early Christians were already getting together to celebrate what? The Lord's Supper. They were there to celebrate this sacrament. And so immediately they would have seen the parallels between what they were having served to them by these apostles uh, and and disciples and what Jesus did in this particular miracle. 
Why would they do that? Well, look, as a Jewish person, you have to understand that these people had been living for ages with a certain promise, a certain worldview, if you will. And it came from places like Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6. Listen to this. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all his peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That was the way you looked at your world because you knew there was a promise that a Messiah would arrive. And you know how you would know when he arrived? Because he brought feasting with him. And that feasting was not just going to be with physical food. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, the, 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 the feasting, the, the, the smelling and the tasting and the chewing and the swallowing would all have a deeper spiritual meaning. And what was that? Look at verse 20. <laughs> it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. Exact same phrase from chapter 15, verse 37. And they all ate and were satisfied, Jew and Gentile alike. What is Jesus doing? What Jesus is doing is saying, look, would you look beyond your full stomachs for just a moment, and realize that there's an emptiness in your heart. Look at the lack of satisfaction in you. Look at your grappling with the pointlessness of your life and see that only he can truly feed you with a food that if you would just eat it, it would take all that away. It would remove your fear of death. It would remove fear in general. It would remove your shame would wipe away tears from your faces. This is how Jesus puts it in the, in the John 6 version of this story, verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. <laughs> By the way, in that, this has nothing to do with the sermon. In that section, one of the very next verses come in, it says, and some of his disciples left him after he started talking this way. And you think, why would they leave him? I don't know. He's talking about eating his body. Um, go figure. Again, it has nothing to do here. Tim Keller makes this point, though. He says, that is probably the most egocentric thing any religious guru has ever said. That statement. Because Jesus is not saying, I have the bread of life. I possess the bread of life. He's saying <laughs> that what I is, is I am the bread of life. I'm not saying that I'm a guide to life. If that was the case, he would just be like an, any other instructor. He'd be like any other guru pointing this way and that way. That's not what he says. In, in the John 6 version of verse 28, it says, Then they said to him, what must, me, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, what My bread that I am bringing you is not about your working. Because if you think about bread, you know, as long as the bread stays intact, it's kind of useless to you, isn't it? I mean, it has to be chewed and ingested in order to bring you the satisfaction that you need so badly. And I really hope you get this because this is Jesus, right? He's there in this moment where he's just lost John the Baptist. He's just died violently like we talked about last week. 
And so he tries to withdraw. Why? Probably because he knows he needs some time to think about what just happened. And about the fact, by the way, that he's going to meet the same fate. He'll be the same victim of an unjust legal system. Which what? It leads him to start to think about feeding his people. <laughs> Look, the story of John the Baptist and Jesus feeding, they're connected in exactly this way. Because Jesus knows that he's about to get chewed up by that legal system. And they're going to pin his whole body up on a crossbeam for public display and shaming. But why? He does so that his, so that his people can share in a feast that he's bringing. And he's going to begin that feast by filling up satisfaction in our hearts. But don't miss the, the, the drama here. Jesus is saying... Either I get chewed up on your behalf or you will get chewed up by this life or the next life for that matter. But there is no third option. There's a, a pastor working in a Mount Juliet, Tennessee, or at least used to, found an essay that he wrote online on this topic. A guy by the name of Daryl Crouch, who is describing an elderly member of his church uh, who he has named Roger. Roger is getting older. Uh, and Roger has dementia, advanced forms of it by the time of the writing of this essay. But, but Crouch would go on to write about him that, you know, as he was fading and going through this, they had to move him into a facility where he could be taken care of. Interestingly enough, apparently he stated before the disease began to advance that he had worked all hard, hard all of his whole life so that he could take care of this uh, so his family wouldn't be burdened by it. But it didn't matter. His wife would go and pick him up every Sunday afternoon to take him to church. Well, Crouch talks about how Roger, throughout the service, especially during the singing, would sort of wave his hands like he was directing the music during the singing of the hymns. And he said, here was a man who came to a point in his life where he could barely remember the names of his own children. And yet he could repeat the word to every single song. Why? Because the rhythms of worship that had happened to him with week in, week out coming before God were more deeply ingrained in him than the damaged brain cells in his own head. But Crouch said it used to absolutely devastate me when we would come together to meet for the Lord's table. And here would come Roger. And he said it was worth every bit of effort we extended so that whenever we said the words of institution and we would look at him and say, this is my body, which is for you, he would see Roger just break out in a huge grin, and he would smile from ear to ear, having no idea what was actually getting into his actual consciousness. This is what Crouch writes. I love this. He says, these mundane patterns of worship that we practice when life is good, when we feel strong and full of vigor, they actually shape our hearts to keep worshiping when we aren't as strong as we thought. Or when Alzheimer's is the diagnosis. Or dementia. When we discover that we're at the end of our rope. When our potential gives way to reality. And when our best days on earth make room for better days in heaven. So Jesus looks at his followers at the very end and he says, Look, as often as you get together, I want you to do this. <laughs> I want you to rally around a table. And I want it to mean something that as you begin to taste and touch and smell, that as your senses are engaged around a meal, you begin to think of something on the inside. 
of how much you need satisfaction. A satisfaction of heart that Jesus is saying can only be met in me. Jesus transforms a very simple meal into something that satisfies in ways that no other meal can. But in a strange way, (laughs) this is the capital M meal here. It also transforms the little M meals. Every time Christians get together, we do what? We receive all things with thankfulness. Why do we do that? Because we know that we're filling more than our bellies. We filled something in our souls that could only have been done by him. That's what this table means. That's what Jesus is describing. wonder who's coming to feed this morning. Let's pray.